one characteristic of a cedar tree is that when the air is full of snow and it begins to descend, the tree will actually lift its branches in a way better to receive the snow and bear up under it. That's a lot like the Christian life. The grandest cedars of Christian character that the world has ever known, and even in our own congregation, lift higher their branches toward God when the snows of trouble come. You don't need to read extensively in Christian history or Christian biography to spot the connection between suffering and sorrow and sanctification, that is, God's people growing in Christ-likeness. On the Lord's Day of February 6, 1870, George Mueller's wife, Mary, died of rheumatic fever. They had been married 39 years and four months. The Lord gave him the strength to preach at her memorial service where he said the following, I miss her in numberless ways and shall miss her yet more and more. But as a child of God and as a servant of the Lord Jesus, I bow. I am satisfied with the will of my heavenly Father. I seek by perfect submission to his holy will to glorify him. I kiss continually the hand that has thus afflicted me. This is similar to how Sarah Edwards responded to the death of her husband, Jonathan, writing to her daughter, Esther, whose own husband had died just six six months earlier. She said the following, My very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him so long. But my God lives and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God and there I am in love to be. Your affectionate mother, Sarah Edwards. What gave John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, such a wondrous vision of the celestial city? It was a Bedford penitentiary. What gave Richard Baxter such a power to tell about the saints' everlasting rest? Physical disease which racked every nerve of his body for years on end. What made George Whitfield so mighty in saving souls, bringing tens of thousands of people to God? Persecution that caricatured and assailed him all up and down England and dead vermin thrown in his face when he was preaching. What mellowed and glorified William Wilberforce's Christian character to deal with the ongoing abolition movement to end slavery in England? Well, it was a financial misfortune that led him to write, I know not why my life is spared so long, except it be to show that a man can be happy without a fortune as with one. Brothers and sisters, these cedars of Christian history speak to us of the power of sorrow in refining people in their Christian character. And that's nothing less than what we've seen over the course of these previous three sermons with Job. We've spent the last 37 chapters of Job hearing people's interpretations of Job's suffering. We've listened to Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar and Elihu and even Job himself. And yet, 
in these final four chapters, we get God's perspective. God steps in and God speaks and God gives us the lens through which we are not only to interpret Job's suffering, but all of ours as well. Whether it ever matches the level of Job's. The principles abide and the truths contained here are ones that our soul needs regardless. We're going to see four perspectives that God gives Job on his suffering that we need in our suffering as well. Here's the first one. In our suffering, we are confronted with the glory of God. Simply put, suffering puts us in our place. You might think and I might think that we have a lot of control over things. Suffering has a way of bursting that bubble and putting us in our place and showing that we are not the sovereign of the universe that we like to often live as if we were. As we've seen, Job has exerted a lot of effort to get God's answer to his whys. Job has demanded over and over again that God explain himself, and yet here in chapters 38 to 42, God begins to question Job and ask him, so who made you king of the universe? When did you become the expert in how to control creation? Notice how God confronts Job at the beginning of chapter 38. It's graciously. He comes to him and speaks to him on his terms. He's speaking into Job's life. He's entering into Job's world. And at the same time, he speaks from the storm, we're told, from the whirlwind. Now, the same word storm in chapter 38, verse 1, is used in Nahum chapter 1, verse 3, Habakkuk chapter 3, Zechariah 9, and they all show that God goes to battle on his people's behalf against the powers that would overwhelm them. When God shows up in the whirlwind, it is not to overwhelm his people, it is to show that nothing will overwhelm his people. Because God is the God of the storm. God is the God of the hurricane talk more about that a little bit later but how did job think he was going to be confronted by god if and when god ever did show up well we're not left to wonder if you'll turn back to job chapter 9 job gives his thoughts about if god were to show up in answer to his pleas what might he do well in job chapter 9 verses 16 and 17 we read the following if i summoned him and he answered me i would not believe that he was listening to my voice for he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. Really, Job, he would show up in a tempest and crush you? How about he shows up in a tempest to comfort you? That is your God, Job. That is our God. How did his friends think he would respond? Well, we read in Job chapter 11, Job's friend's anticipation of what Job might get coming to him if God were ever to show up in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 11. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Boy, you're going to get it. When God opens his mouth to you, Job, you should be thankful he's only taken this much. But brothers and sisters, that's not what we get here. Even though 
Job is not in a position as creature to sit in judgment on the Creator. Nevertheless, the Creator relates to His creature in a very creaturely way. He shows up in chapter 38 and speaks to him directly. He answers Job. And so for three chapters, God is going to graciously but relentlessly undermine Job's credibility to call God's activity into question. And he does so by confronting Job with the display of his glorious power in creation. And I want you to notice how he does it with such a stern gentleness. God isn't trying to make Job just feel small. God wants him to see the limited perspective he has in being able to judge what God is doing. His basic point is, Job, you don't know enough to conclude that I'm a tyrant. You don't know enough. And that's a gracious, stern, but gracious form of gentleness. We're going to see it in four ways here in chapters 38 and 39. First of all, God describes his power before the earth ever existed. Look at verses 4 and 5 of chapter 38, where God asked Job, Where were you? Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. And who stretched the line upon it? Look at verse 21. You know, for you were born then, and the numbers of your days are great. Don't you love a little bit of divine sarcasm? He says, surely you know. You were born then. You were around then, Job. You were back there in the beginning. God created. You were with me, weren't you? In the beginning, God created, and Job was there. Is that what it says? No, that's not what it says, Job. I was here before this earth ever existed. Keep that in mind. Secondly, God tells him of his power under the earth. Look at verses 16 to 18 of chapter 38. Have you entered into the springs of the sea and walked in the recesses of the deep? You ever been in the Mariana Trench, Job? Just walked along? I'm there all the time. Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare, if you know all this. Not only does he show God's power before the earth and under the earth, but also above the earth. Look at verses 31 to 33. Can you bind the chains of Pleiades and loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season? And can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Say, who set up natural law? Who made the planets orbit this way? Who made the stars go this way? Surely you know, Job. It was you, right? There is some chaos that God allows to exist in his world. The sea is barred, God says, but it still rages. Notice verse 38, 9 to 11. When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its waddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars on its doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther. Here shall your proud waves be stayed. Now, this is going to play into what God's going to talk about with Job a little bit later, but he's telling him up front, there is chaos in this world, but it's chaos that I overrule. The lion remains in the earth under the curse And it's still dangerous, but it's under my control. Look at verses 39 and 40. Can you hunt the prey for the lion? 
or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens and lie in wait in their thicket? God's power before the earth, God's power under the earth, God's power above the earth, God's power on the earth. In chapter 39, God refers to a variety of animals that walk on the earth, all of which are under God's sovereign provision and protection. He discusses the mountain goat in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 39. He discusses the donkey in chapters 5 to 8. We read of chapter another animal in chapter 39, verse 9. You can look at it with me. He says, Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Are you the ox whisperer, Job? Do you call the ox and it comes and sleeps where you want it to sleep, Job? No, I do. Look at verses 39, or chapter 39, verses 13 to 18, where he discusses the ostrich. The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but are they the pinions and plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs to the earth. She leaves them be, let them be warmed on the earth, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beast may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers, though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear because God has made her forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding. Did you make the ostrich, Job? Did you make it stupid? I made it dumb on purpose, God says. But notice how he's even using the ostrich as an example of what's happening in Job's life. Job feels like he's been abandoned, he's been left, nobody cares for him. He's been exposed to the elements, he's going to be crushed underneath all this chaos. Nevertheless, she has no fear. The ostrich does. What about the hawk or the horse? We read of those in chapter 39 as well. But in each case, God demonstrates to Job his care for the animals and his knowledge of the animals. There are massive dimensions of order and goodness in God's world, and God is not the violent bully that Job thinks he is. These chapters reveal a God who is powerfully present in his creation. By appealing to the whole created world, what is was before it, what's above it, what's under it, what's on it, he is revealing to Job his sovereign control over everything that he has made. God is doing this to show Job that he doesn't know what God knows. Job is reminded that God is completely wise, he's completely just, he's completely powerful, he's completely good. By appealing to creation, which God cares for and orders for the best, God is indirectly saying to Job, Listen, Job, the same God that I am who reigns over all this is the same God I am to you who reigns over all that has happened to you as well. And if he cares for his creation like this, he's not lost sight of Job. Pain has a way of pulling us into ourselves, doesn't it? And so God through his creation, is pulling Job out of himself. Say, Job, look up, look around, look down. Look at all the ways I care for my creation. Doesn't Jesus do this for us? Matthew 6, 26 to 30. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? This is what God's saying to Job. I do all this for all these animals. I do this for a stupid ostrich. How much more will I care for you? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of life? 
Jesus says. And why are, are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, when Solomon, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, clothe you, O you, of little faith? Is that not essentially what God himself is saying to Job here? O you of little faith, I, I care for you. I'm here. Look at my glory in creation. Do you not think much more I pay attention to you? The answer would be yes. Let's not forget that. Don't forget the healing powers of creation in your suffering, brothers and sisters. Look at God's world. Read Job 38 and 39 again and meditate on the glory of God in his creation, the glorious care that he extends for every single part of his creation and his glorious presence in every single part of his creation so that you know I'm not alone. I'm not alone. Secondly, in our suffering, we are convicted by the greatness of God. One of the greatest afflictions we experience in our sin is our persistent pride. We can look at all the unfolding events in our lives and ask God, what are you doing? We feel free to question Him because deep down, we believe that we could run this universe a whole lot better than God could. And in Job 40, we find Job saying the wisest thing he said since chapter 2, where he says in verses 3 to 5, we'll read again, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you. I lay my hand on my mouth. Job acknowledges before God that he has spoken foolishly and that the best thing for him to do is to be quiet and to avoid incriminating himself any further. And then we read in chapter 42 of a deeper expression of Job's repentance that Larry read for us in verses 1 to 6, where he repents. He says in verse 6, I despise myself. Now, what happened here? There's two expressions of sorrow, one in chapter 40, one in chapter 42. You notice there's been a whole lot of attitude in the early parts of the book of Job. You've got Job's attitude of self-pity and self-assertion. You've got his friend's attitude of self-accusation. You've got Elihu's attitude of self-discipline. And then you've got God's attitude of self-surrender. Job is a broken and a changed man by chapter 42. And this is what happens when we really see God, right? Isaiah 6, woe to me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amidst the people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king. We see it with Peter in Luke 5, depart from me. I'm a sinful man, O Lord. We see it in the centurion in Luke 7. Lord, do not trouble yourself. I'm not worthy to even have you come under my roof. What explains the difference in Job's responses between, okay, I'll be quiet now, to in chapter 40, to chapter 42, I despise myself, I repent in dust and ashes? Well, we are introduced to an extended speech regarding two mysterious beasts, Behemoth and Leviathan. Look at verse 6-8 of chapter 40. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man, I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God and can you thunder with a voice like his? 
Now, in chapter 40, verses 15 to 24, we are introduced to a creature called behemoth. And in chapter 41, almost the entirety of the chapter, verses 1 to 34, in fact, I believe it is, yeah, the entirety of the chapter 41, we are told about another creature called Leviathan. And commentators love these mysterious figures. They love to write about what's behemoth and what's Leviathan. And some people take it in really, really literal terms, and some of them take it in really, really weird ways. What are these creatures? Well, the most literal commentators will view it as, well, behemoths talk about a hippopotamus, and uh, leviathans talk about a crocodile. They seem to fit the features of those animals. Yet, why would a hippo and a crocodile move Job from admitting his wrong to repenting in dust and ashes? Just the seeing a hippo, huh? That's all it took. Seeing a crocodile? That's what it took? And what do a hippo and a crocodile have to do with God's justice? Which is what he says in verse 8. Will you put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me as somebody? Or will you condemn me as that you may be in the right? In other words, he, he puts forward behemoth and Leviathan as an example of how he deals justly with chaos. Behemoth and Leviathan, I believe, are represented as symbolic, supernatural figures of chaos and evil. They are intended to be taken symbolically. Remember, Job is poetic. It is poetry, fundamentally. Now, there's narrative in it in the beginning and at the end. But in the middle, it's all poetry. It's symbolism. And these figures, I believe, are are meant to be taken symbolically rather than literally. The Bible treats them as symbolic. Uh, Psalm 74, verses 13 and 14, Leviathan is associated with a great sea monster. In Isaiah 27, 1, Leviathan is associated with a sea dragon or a twisting serpent that flees. God is alluding to stories and myths that Job would have been familiar with in the ancient Near East. One such myth was the presence of some kind of dragon god or serpent god or sea monster god who was the arch enemy of the true God. Behemoth and Leviathan then are presented as the embodiment of beastliness, of terror, of undiluted evil and chaos. In fact, in Job chapter 3, verse 8, Job associates them with death. And don't forget Revelation chapter 12, where Satan himself is presented as a great dragon. So who is Behemoth and Leviathan presented as in the book of Job? Well, it's God giving Job insight into what we already knew from chapter 1 and 2. Satan has made warfare on Job. Satan has been allowed to go after Job and to flood his life with chaos. And yet by alluding to them, God is addressing the problem of evil in the created order. Look at verse 9, or sorry, 10 through 14 of chapter 40. Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. Tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your right hand can save you. He's saying, I deal with evil. I I deal justly with evil in the world. Can you deal with that, Job? Here, Leviathan and Behemoth are pictured as on a leash and under God's control. Look at verse four, chapter 41, verse 1. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook and press down his tongue with a cord? 
Can you catch Leviathan? Notice verse 5. Will you play with him as with a bird? Will you put him on a leash for your girls? Has Satan been on a leash in the book of Job? Yes. He had to get permission from God to afflict Job to begin with. And God is telling him, look, Job, what we have known, that is us, because we've been looking at the book of Job, we know what's behind Job's suffering. Job hasn't. But Job now discovers something that he had not considered before, that there had been chaos introduced into his life that God permitted for his good. And that is what leads him from silence to repentance. Remember Psalm 104, verse 26. God says that Leviathan was formed to play in the great and wild sea. It is all the chaos and evil that has entered into Job's life is under God's sovereign control. God allows suffering and pain in this world, and whether it's the ordinary world of animals and things like that, or the supernatural, sinister powers of chapter 40 and 41, they are not outside of God's sovereign power. The natural world of chapter 38 and 39, the supernatural world of chapter 40 and 41, are both under God's sovereign control. And in doing this, God is helpfully complicit, complicating Job's theology. He's saying to Job, Job, terrible suffering can't occur without me being directly responsible. I didn't do it directly. Now, I, I decreed it, I oversaw it, I superintended it, but I wasn't the one that afflicted you. Satan afflicted you. And yet, Job is also, or God is also complicating, Job, complicating Job's friend's theology. Because God's plan includes allowing elements of chaos into his world and without there being a direct link between sin and suffering on the part of an individual. And most importantly, God will one day defeat the evil he presently tolerates. We read in chapter 40, verse 19, He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. And brothers and sisters, this is what we saw and what we read and what we read in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, where Christ himself on the cross disarmed the rulers and principalities and powers, making open declaration that he is triumphant over them in his death. He defeated Satan on the cross. So in our suffering, we are also convicted by the greatness of God. Thirdly, in our suffering, we are corrected by the grace of God. In our suffering, we are corrected by the grace of God. We see God now coming to confront Job's friends in Job chapter 40, verse 7, where we read, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Sorry, that's God confronting Job. He'll confront Job's friends in a minute. But surprisingly, God does not say to them or to him, You've spoken what's right. God says, you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Look at chapter 42, verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Timnite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, wait a minute. Did God really just say that? Did God really just say that Job has spoken of God correctly? 
I want you to notice the grace of God in his assessment of Job. God is, in a sense, due to Job's repentance, willing to overlook so much of what Job has said. Even to the point where he calls him his servant again. He was never not his servant. But it's almost like God is assessing Job the way he did in chapter 1. Here's my servant Job, holy and blameless. He's spoken of me so well. Because here's the thing, brothers and sisters. When we blow it with God, the best way we can speak well of him is to own it and repent. And guess what? He loves that. He loves it when we say, I was wrong, you're right. <laughs> that is if, that's almost as if we'd never gotten it wrong in God's eyes. God would rather us, and I say this not to condone that he approves sin or that he wants us just to go sinning, but in a sense, God would rather us own our wrong and admit that he was right than claim we were never wrong to begin with. Do you see? Don't you want the grace of God to flood into your life? Well, it's going to come on the back end of a confession like that. When was the last time you said, God, you're right, I'm wrong? Yet again, you're right, and I'm wrong. If you want the Holy Spirit's presence, if you want the greatness and the glory of God to flood your life, get used to that one. And say it a lot, and say it from the heart, and speak to the Lord, and he will flood your life with so much joy you won't even be able to contain it. Some of you are locked up in a joyless, duty Christianity because you don't repent. You don't know how to repent. You don't know how to say authentically from the heart, I'm sorry, God. Please forgive me, God. Can you, can you repent? Yes, you can repent if you see on the back end of repentance this wellspring of joy that comes in the wake of it. God is not sitting there saying, oh, you better repent. I'm going to mash you until you do. See, some of us in the broken homes we grew up in with the Examples we had of authority in our lives, we bring that into our Christianity. It's in my Christianity too. But God is in the process of working that out as he fathers us better, <laughs> as he cares for us better. See, the debate between Job and God has really been about God all along. The book of Job warns every one of us to be aware of our sinful inclination toward opinionated grandiosity. Suffering is often a social reality as well as a personal reality. We see people suffering. We're tempted to blame, to stigmatize, to accuse. And when that judgmentalism pours out of us in words against them, we risk sinning as Job's friends did, speaking against God, oblivious to the real battle that is going on in realms above. So God turns the table on Job's friends. Now, first, it's clear that God has a negative assessment of the advice and actions of Job's friends. And yet, in his correction of them, he extends them mercy. Look at verse 8. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Verse 9, so Eliphaz the Timnite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what, Job, what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. What happens here? 
God says, okay, prepare a sacrifice, take it to the mediator. The mediator will intercede for you and you will be forgiven. This is the gospel in the Old Testament, friends. This is the gospel. This is the work of Jesus Christ presented in the Old Testament. We see that God refers to Job as his servant and as a mediator for his friends, calling upon Job to pray for them. Remember what Job did in chapter 1? Praying for his family, interceding for them, making sacrifices in case any of them has sinned. He's being reinstituted into that role with his friends. Job the righteous who suffered is interceding for his friends and pleading for God's mercy for them. Aren't you thankful for our great good friend, Job Jesus? The righteous, innocent sufferer who intercedes for his stupid friends. And that's us. We have a mediator, brothers and sisters, and Christ is an even better intercessor than Job ever could be. Christ is at the right hand of God praying for you eternally. According to Hebrews chapter 7, he always lives to make intercession for us. Romans 8.34, who is to condemn? Christ is interceding for us. Since the beginning of time, Satan has been the great accuser pointing out our sins, yet Christ is the great redeemer who reconciles us to God. And he saves not people who were formerly his friends, but people who were formerly his enemies. And like Job, Jesus is righteous. And like Job, Jesus suffered. And yet, here's a key difference between Job's suffering and Christ's suffering. God preserved Job's life and did not allow Satan to kill him. In contrast, God did not spare the life of his beloved son. He allowed Satan to kill him to the end. Delivered him over to death. Christ, the ultimate suffering servant, made payment for Job's sins and all the sins of any of us who trust in him reconciling Job and us to God for all eternity. Job saw the salvation that he was being offered through a mirror, dimly pleading for an advocate and a redeemer. In Job 16 and Job 19, we have that redeemer now. We have that redeemer present to us in the high definition of the gospel. Job only thought that God had abandoned him, but Christ was in fact abandoned by God as he took on our sin at the cross, crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he cried that out so that we would know that we would never, ever be forsaken. Job frequently didn't submit to God's plan for his life. In his speeches, Job cursed the day of his birth. He accused God of acting recklessly, and he demanded that God appear and explain himself. Job was not content. In fact, in chapter 9 and 10, he says he hated his life. But Christ knew the agony of the cross deep down in his body and soul. And he still submitted to the Father's will. In the Garden of the Gethsemane, he fell to the ground, sweat like grape drops of blood fell, and yet he prayed, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Christ suffered knowingly and willingly, obeying God's will to the end. And this is so encouraging. This is the hope we have. That in all of our suffering and in all of our sin that springs out of our suffering, we are not left without compassion, without hope, without restoration. This is the hope presented to all of us. While God's wrath was kindled against Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and while they were wrong in their advice and in the actions, in their actions, they were not beyond the hope of forgiveness and a path of restoration was provided for them and so for us as well. So friend, are you looking to Jesus to intercede for you in the midst of your sinfulness?
in the midst of the ways you've spoken about God and live contrary to his ways? Are you looking to your great mediator and your great intercessor and you're saying to Jesus, pray for me. Pray for me, intercede for me. Offer sacrifices on my behalf because there's no way I'll be reconciled and restored apart from you. You can be this morning if that's not you yet. Fourthly and finally, in our suffering, we are comforted with the goodness of God. In verses 10 through 17 of chapter 42, God does something that maybe we didn't expect if we were reading the book for the first time. In verse 10, we're told that the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. Notice something here. What happens? What, what has to happen first? Okay, I want you to notice a couple of things. First of all, Job is brought to joy before he ever gets his stuff back. Okay, and in 42 verse 7, he says, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. That can also be, I, I comfort myself. I comfort myself and I repent in dust and ashes. In other words, I take all that you've said, God, and I am comforted. I am blessed. I sit before you content. So God is what we need. Not our stuff back. Not our family back. God is what we need. But God is so lavish and so generous that he restores all that Job lost. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job, we're told in verse 10, when he had prayed for his friends. Think about that. Boy, that's, that's faith working through love, isn't it? Would you want to pray for those guys who've treated you that way? Would you want to forgive people? Listen, like, do, do you want God to flow in blessing in your life? Who are you not forgiving? We talked about not repenting, locking us up. Well, bitterness will lock you up too. If you will not repent and you will not forgive people for their wrongs against you, I don't want to see you on the day of judgment when God has to stand before you and treat you the way you have treated others. But if we have been lavish in our forgiveness of others, God says, I'll be lavish in my forgiveness of you. Now, is that because somehow it's transactional with God? Like we purchase his forgiveness by forgiving others? No, we can't forgive others unless we've been forgiven anyway. <laughs> so no, but the proof of a forgiven heart is a forgiving disposition. The, truth, the proof of a forgiving person is a forgiving person. Forgiving people are forgiven. That's how we spot forgiven people. But we read also of what God does in verse 12. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. It's hard to believe. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels. He's blessing him beyond even what he had before. 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. And he had also seven sons and three daughters. He called the name of his first daughter, Jemiah, the name of the second, Keziah, the name of the third, Karen Hapuk. And in all the land were there no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his son's sons four generations. And Job died, an old man, 
and full of days. In Job's restoration, we see that God is rich in his grace toward his suffering children. Now, at the end of this narrative, we can get a little jaded and cynical if we're not careful. We can look and say, yeah, God's just kind of passing over his old family, isn't he? They weren't important. That's not what's happening here. God's not minimizing the suffering that Job experienced at the hands of Satan. Yes, Job's fortune is restored. Yes, Job is blessed with double the wealth and a house full of children and many happy years. But his lengthy tale of woe at last has a happy ending, and that's what we're supposed to conclude. The restoration of Job does not answer all of our questions about the specific suffering experienced in his life, but it does reveal an overarching and universal principle of suffering that's in the lives of all believers. You will get a double portion for your suffering. By giving Job a double portion, God is telling us that he too is planning a disproportionate response of blessing to all his children who suffer righteously. 2 Corinthians 4, this light momentary affliction is preparing us an eternal weight of glory. Double portion, beyond what you could ever ask or think. Romans 8, 18, I consider that the sufferings of the present are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. Our times of suffering then are only temporary interruptions that God always eventually heals. I was reminded of that this week. I want to close with an email I received from a pastor friend. He sent it to a number of brothers. Pastor Jeremy Rennie is the pastor of Sanibel Community Church in Sanibel, Florida. Lost everything in Ian. Most of his church did. He lost their building lost his home. Here's what he wrote as he went back to his house to reflect on what the Lord had done. Jeremy says, all the stuff stored down in the basement was ruined. Six feet of turbid storm surge fouled everything it touched. The seawater still filled some of our tubs with nasty, brown, putrid seawater. And then there's the mud. Hurricane Ian left a thick, gray, slippery sludge. Sliding around and that stuff feels and smells like sloshing and sewage. Maybe some of it is sewage. And so we carried on out my sodden, befouled possessions one by one and then heaved them onto two great rubbish mounds at the end of the driveway. Pictures, baby clothes, sleeping bags, mattresses, snorkeling equipment, a Keurig, suitcases, and more passed by in a funeral procession toward the trash. Each item carried a memory and a story. Now my own hands hurled them onto the heap. The lowest point came when I found a tub that sat on a cabinet just above the water line. It was sealed tight and contained mementos from one of my, for one of my kids. It was like a little ark full of meaning and hope saved from the flood. While carrying it out, by, my foot slid in that mud, and I banged into the wall and dropped the tub. It flipped and spilled everything into the mud. On the one hand, it's just stuff. But on the other hand, it's still hard to lose things. Many of those items held meaning and memory. They are artifacts of our life. So tossing them feels like a death. And on top of it all, there's the simple, sobering realization that I don't have anything anymore. When I got back to my condo, a text came through from Brian Harris, a new member 
of Sanibel Community Church. It was a bit from Psalm 40. He wrote, He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my, ha- my mouth, a hymn of praise to God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Jeremy says, I don't have my stuff, but I do have God's word. I have prayer, and I have a body of believers who love one another and are serving one another sacrificially, both in word and deed. And through these things, I have Jesus who lifts me from the miry bog. As I reflected on my own losses, I realized where our church is right now. God has stripped our church naked. We're in the mud. We've lost so much. We don't have very much at all to offer the world. We can't offer a beautiful causeway drive on Sunday morning or a cheery island campus. We don't have the historic chapel to use, and Kevin's cool youth room is now a storage area for salvaged items. The cafe's menu of lattes and pastries has been replaced with water bottles and MREs. One hurricane changed everything. We've gone from a strong, established institution to a refugee church in exile meeting in a building graciously offered to us by a three-year-old church plant. Today, our church only has three things. We have the Word of God. We have the Gospel. Sorry, we have the Word of God and the Gospel it proclaims. We have prayer and we have love for one another. And in these three things, we have Jesus. He concludes saying, Sunday night was our first worship gathering since the hurricane. Our assembly had a fresh authenticity, intensity, and simplicity. You could, you, could, you could hear the faith in the singing and praying, and you could feel the love as people lingered long afterward to talk and hug. We had God's word, we had prayer, we had each other, and that's enough. A woman came up to me afterward and said, do you realize what's happening here? This is a room full of people who've suffered great loss, and yet they're praising God. That's what we have to offer the world. It's like the psalmist said, He's pulling us up from the miry bog. He's putting a new song in our mouths. Many will see and hear and put their trust in the Lord. James 5.11 Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Let's pray. And there's the conclusion of Job, Lord. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. Let it be etched on our hearts while we live and on our gravestones when we die. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. In all of our suffering and all of our struggles and all of our doubts and all of our fears and all of our anxieties and all of our worries, the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And all of our self-flagellation and fear of repentance, the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And all of our works righteousness and pride, the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And all of our efforts to try to fix our own problems, the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And all of our bad advice, the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And all the ways that we have failed to suffer well and held, failed to help our brothers and sisters suffer well, the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Keep us steadfast, Lord, by fixing our minds on you, for we trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing.